Well, thanks so much to our team for leading us and helping us to prepare our hearts. Well, welcome. Welcome. My name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here at Summit Drive Church, and we are jumping into part two of our new series, Lovers in a Dangerous Time, Everyday Habits for Faith Formation. Um, yes, I, title, I ripped the title off of the Bruce Coburn song, and it has been stuck in my head for a few weeks now. If it's been stuck in yours, you're welcome. And there is or there ought to be a raging debate at this point as to whether or not the Bare Naked Ladies cover of the version is better than the original or not. Um, and now, if you're just joining us, um, you might want to go back and listen to last week because we kind of really kind of lay the groundwork for the rest of this series. Um, there I explain what I mean by lovers, like we're, we're made to love God and to love others. Uh, and also, I describe what I mean by a dangerous time, and it's maybe not exactly what we would have assumed. More on that in a minute. Uh, now, I, I began the, the gift book series by using music as um, an analogy or a metaphor that in many ways our lives, just like um, in, in, a, in the sense of music, need to be in tune. Like to play an instrument that's out of tune just sounds awful, it sounds wrong. And, and so, we, we want to make sure that our lives are in tune with how God made us to live. And so, we looked at the practice of solitude, like taking time uh, daily and in other ways to just be quiet and pay attention to God and reflect, and also to meditate on what God has said to us. But, you know, there's another key element of music I want us to focus on today, and that's being on time. Uh, in any piece of music, there is going to be um, a, a rhythm Maybe it's a time signature, 4-4 four, four, or 6-8, and so you need to play with, within the groove that is set there. There's also tempo, which is the, the speed of the song, how fast or slow the song goes. And um, many new musicians, they'll struggle with that element of tempo. They'll be prone when they jump into a group of musicians to often speed up the song, but um, experienced musicians will have like an inner metronome, just the ability to stay on time no matter what's happening around them. And I want us to focus in on that metaphor today. We're going to talk about what it means to be on time. Maybe the question we need to begin asking is just like, what kind of rhythm of life are you keeping? Ask that of yourself. Or maybe even a better question would be, Whose rhythm are you playing to? Let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you that um, we can gather, even if it happens to be in an online kind of way, that we can still meet together uh, to focus in on you and what you are wanting to say to us today. So we ask, God, that by your grace, you would give us a posture of heart that's ready to hear what you want to say to us. In Christ's name, amen. Now, in that first message uh, I introduce briefly what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls uh, a secular age, the one that we live in presently in the modern, late Western worlds. Now, it doesn't mean an atheistic age, not exactly, in the sense that people don't believe in God. Many, many people actually do believe in God or some kind of spiritual forces. Rather, he's talking about an age that has, as Alan Noble has put it, an explosion of possible belief systems, 
all of which are endlessly contested and all of which make belief in the idea of like a transcendent God less conceivable. In this kind of setting, we we actually feel a burden to create as an individual our own system of making sense of the world and ourself within it and of God if we believe there is any sort of God. And so, as Taylor puts it, at the heart of a secular age is the individual effort to form and then project an identity in a chaotic and hostile world. So, that's the challenge of the the space that we live in. That is the dangerous time, that we are being formed and shaped as though we have to make sense of all of the meaning of the world on our own, actually. And within this world, there are many assumptions that you and me and our neighbors down the street that we just kind of drink in all the time. It's the waters we swim in, and we're not even aware of what many of those things are. And and, and so that's where I want us to focus in on today. Here's one of those assumptions. If I was to ask you, what is your most important resource? What would you say it is? I, I, I'm just going to guess that for most of us, when we heard that, we said, well, well it's, it's our time. Our, our time. Uh, and, and, and then choosing what we do with our time becomes the pressing question for us. Again, Alan Noble, he's reflecting on our secular age and our uh, experience of time, and he says it like this, like, Like much else in the modern world, time becomes an instrument for our manipulation. We choose to give certain hours of our life to labor in exchange for payment. We live for the weekends, and we expend considerable resources on technology that can either give us more free time or help us fill dead time. In viewing time as raw material, we reject the idea that time may have meaning in and of itself, that it may be more than a measure of intervals, but contain truths that place obligations on us to act in certain ways. We need to see this today, that living in a secular age means the flattening out of the significance or meaning of time. But what if time were actually imbued with beauty and significance? It's more than just a resource at our disposal. Like, what if time was created by and even belongs still to God? In the opening verses of the Bible, we read this. This is Genesis 1, 3 to 5. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. You see what happens here? God is creating time itself. The light and the darkness, God orders these to create days, and then God says it's good, like He values what He made. The rest of the chapter will actually be an unfolding of this rhythm of God's ordering of His cosmos within time. And it leads to the ultimate celebration and enjoyment of what God has made on day seven. So, what if it's true? 
what we read at the beginning of the Bible, it tells us that God creates time, that it's His, that He defines now also what it's for. My hope today then is that we recover not only a view of time, but also a practice of keeping time with God, recapturing a rhythm of life so that we experience life with God in all the fullness that God intends it. So, I need us to begin by seeing that we all live by certain stories, stories that we tell, stories that we listen to, and so we are storied beings. It's how we make sense of the world. And we have to know that there are competing stories, many of them, that we hear all the time. And they typically tell us that we need more in order to experience fullness of life, more power, money, beauty, status. And this is the kicker. You have to somehow figure out and make life meaningful for yourself on your own terms. One philosopher calls that the terror of history in our moment. But there is a different story, which, yes, claims to be the story, the true story of the world. It's a story of love that God actually wanted us, that we're not an accident, we're here by His design. And it's a story of grace that even though we all have sought in some way or another to live as though we didn't need God, He doesn't give up on us. That at the cost of His own life, He buys us back for communion with God and each other. And throughout the Bible, we find that God's people have always been called to mark the time based on year and week and even the day to remind ourselves of God's love, His redemptive work. Why do we need to do that? (laughs) Because we forget. And in the forgetting, we begin to buy into a different story, an untrue story, and that story deforms us. As we trace the history of Israel throughout the story, we see that the periods of righteousness or rebellion roughly coincide with their faithfulness to remember and tell their story. That's how Mike Cospers puts it, and I think he does it well. And we're not so unlike them, are we? That's why we too are instructed to tell and retell the story of how God has come to rescue and reclaim us through Jesus, His Son. Communion, baptism, The songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the reading of Scripture, the preaching of Jesus, all of this is to rehearse and remember the way that through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, that's what fills our life with, brings us in accord with the reality of God's world, to live now in light of His kingdom. And so, by doing this, by marking time, by setting aside times of year and week and day to give our attention to God, our hearts are reformed. And we see this on a yearly sense, that that Advent, we've just come through a season of keeping time, of awaiting next to the people of Israel the time that Jesus would finally come. And then we celebrate the coming of Jesus at Christmas, we throw a huge party to say God has really become one of us to set us free and make us His forever. And then at the celebration of Jesus' death and resurrection, 
It's preceded in most Christian traditions by Lent, this season of fasting, which means going without something that's, you know, regularly a part of our life, maybe going without food or certain foods, or maybe for us this year, it'll be a media fast, taking some time away from screen time so that we can pay attention more to God. It helps us think about, remember, experience again how the brokenness of the world is what God has come to redeem. So that at the coming of Easter, at Jesus' death and His resurrection, our hearts are caught up in that celebration in a whole new way. And so you see, keeping time or finding rhythm is a key practice for recovering our humanity and forming our our Christian identity. Because time is not simply a tool for creating or propping up a self-made image. It's the beautiful gift in which we function with God. So let's dig into what that means for us in a practical sense, uh, even daily. If, if I were to ask you, when does the day start? Most of us would answer like, like this. I'm looking for my alarm clock to turn it off, and then I rush into the workday, you know, get ourselves ready, or maybe our kids, if we have them, ready for school. Begins in the morning at daybreak. Our common concept of the day begins with going to work and then ends with us finally resting from our work. The Jewish concept of the day is very different. It actually begins at sundown. A Jewish concept of time says we start the day with rest, with sleep and the refreshment. And while we sleep, we trust that God is still at work because He never sleeps. We awaken from our rest And then we work from a place of that rest and that trust rather than rest from our work. And then at the end of the day, we come home and we return to eat a meal, perhaps around the table with others we share life with. And at the meal, we give thanks. This is a place of table grace because God has answered our prayer, give us today our daily bread. And then we turn, and at the table and around the table, we say, thank you. That's the Eucharistic life we talked about yesterday, or last week, pardon me. And it's a wildly different concept of time, isn't it? It reflects God's grace toward us. It reminds us, I think, of the fact that we are human beings, not human doings. Just maybe sit with that for a moment. For many of us, we have felt the inner compulsion to measure our worth by the work of our hands. Like our work, whatever it happens to be, is not just work. It's often the way we justify our existence. So there is a work under the work, as Timothy Keller calls it. We use our time and what we do with it as a means of saying, see, I am valuable. I am worthy of attention and and love. And into this, we might even say very religious quest to prop up ourselves. This is where Jesus invites us. Paraphrasing Matthew 11 now. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. All of you who have taken a burden on yourself. You take a way of life on yourself that requires constant upkeep to know that you're worth something. 
Jesus' invitation says, come and lay that down. Take up my yoke, he says, my way of life instead, because I'm humble and gentle, and you'll find rest for your souls. In love, you'll find the way that leads to a full life, in my love, rather. It's not a cheap counterfeit that you keep buying into. Come to me, and I'll give you full life, real life. That's what Jesus is inviting you and I into every day. And it's an invitation to, well, as Eugene Peterson paraphrases it, the unforced rhythm of grace. That's a daily rhythm that we can take up. So each day, Jesus calls you and I, come to me, he says, and so we do. We connect with God in prayer and in meditation on his word. It recalibrates our hearts around his reality. And, and maybe another way to do that is just what I try to do daily is, is, you know, I take my dog for a walk, and that's often some of my best times of prayer. You know, I'm away from media inputs. I can just enjoy the world that God has made. It gives me a chance to reflect on the day and to pray it back to him. God, here's how I've seen you uh, at work. Or here's where these moments of desolation were, where I felt like I really got it wrong. God, I confess them to you. So even just a half-hour walk a day is a great way to be in stillness and in solitude and to attend to the presence of God in your life. Let's move one circle out and talk about weekly rhythm now. In 1909, the Italian poet uh, Filippo Tommaso uh, Marinetti composed what he called the Futurist Manifesto. Among the things he affirms, he states, we affirm that the world's magnificence has been enriched by a new beauty, the beauty of speed. We might agree that speed can enrich our lives, and it can. It can be beautiful in some ways. But as we are now in the 21st century, there are many ways where that celebration of speed has become pathological. It's become a disease. Speed isn't always better, especially when it comes to things that matter most in life, like friendship and family and the inner life, the soul. Carl uh, Honoro, he said in his book, In Praise of Slowness, the problem is that our love of speed, our obsession with doing more and more in less and less time, it's gone too far. It has turned into an addiction, a kind of idolatry. And I think he's right. And that word idolatry, if you're unfamiliar, it's a biblical term for, for meaning giving uh, ultimate place for something other than God into God's place. It's, it's to lift something up and celebrate it and praise it inordinately in a place it shouldn't be. Do you guys remember March of last year? The last half of the month, when we were in lockdown or beginning that, the schools closed for the first time. There were jokes going around like, man, March, that was a weird decade. Uh, and it felt like time stood still. The pace of life prior to that moment, extra hours at the office, hockey practices, tournaments, dance lessons, weekly meetings for the board that we're a part of, music lessons, and then bam, it was almost like the whiplash of a car 
smashing into traffic when they weren't paying attention, coming to a standstill as it was flying down the highway, and we all felt the whiplash from it, didn't we? I'm just trying to point out how used to life in high gear all the time we had become, and I think March of last year was a critique of our idolatry of time. I think it kind of functioned like a forced Sabbath, and we'll talk about that in a moment. See, we're not made to live in high gear. Not all the time. Sometimes, yes, but there's all of the gears. And one of the most maybe significant time-marking moments, elements that God has built into His world is the Sabbath. The Sabbath corresponds to the day following God's six days of creation. On the seventh, He completed His work, and He turned, He said, it is very good. And then God gives this commandment to His people. He says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's in Exodus 20. But there's a question of how that works for us now. For some people, often in my parents' generation, talking about Sabbath basically causes them an allergic reaction. (laughs) You see, in some homes and in some Christian traditions, Sabbath-keeping was, and here's how Ken Shigematsu put it, it was often a dreary day filled with don'ts. Don't play baseball. Don't play games. Don't chew gum. In reaction to this, however, many people have simply disregarded the Sabbath altogether. This may be in part because the Sabbath, in the way it's given in the Ten Commandments, is not reaffirmed anywhere in the New Testament, not in the same way. Jesus, Paul, and the writer of Hebrews, they all speak about the Sabbath but in a markedly different way than in the Old Testament. But, and this is really important, this is not because the Old Testament was simply describing a religion of works and somehow now the New Testament is suddenly a a, a religion of grace. That would be a gross misunderstanding of what's going on here. The Old Testament points to, sets up, anticipates how God's story comes to its climax in Jesus. So, how do we look at this Sabbath day and how do we practice it? We'll look at those two things in turn now. Sabbath is a word that means rest. And the first place it shows up is in Genesis 2-2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing. So, on the seventh day, He rested from all His work. So, God puts this beat or this rhythm into the time He creates. When we read of the command uh, to Sabbath-keeping in the Ten Commandments, it's linked with the creation story. It says, like, God rested, so we too take the seventh day and rest. But here's what we need to notice. Resting for a day of a week is a reminder that God is God and we are not. It reminds us that although God is limited, see, God didn't need to rest because He was tired. He didn't need a break. He is Uh, He is God. He is all-powerful. But Sabbath for him was a way to pause and enjoy all that he made. But for us, taking a day to stop, it actually reminds us that we are not limitless. (laughs) We do, in fact, have limits. And it provides the time to slow down, to appreciate what God has done, and then give thanks for all that God has been up to. Barry Jones, uh, he puts it like this, to enter Sabbath rest is to inhabit time differently. 
It's to let go of the need to watch the clock, to move a bit more slowly through the day, to pay more attention to what's happening around us and within us than the fast life usually allows. Notice, inhabit time differently than we would otherwise. That's, that's key. That's part of what we're doing in Sabbathing. And notice, too, it's about paying attention it's to look at our lives, <laughs> to give thanks where we can see that God in His grace has been at work, and to pay attention to those areas that are messy, too, where we need His grace to bring renewal and hope. Sabbath is foreseeing that. The second thing we need to see is that Sabbath is also about justice. It's about the world being put back into right order. See, when Jesus heals on the Sabbath day, when he allows his disciples to pick grain and eat from it, he's not breaking the Sabbath, as the Pharisees say, but he's restoring the world to what it's meant to be. He even calls himself Lord of the Sabbath. Why? Because he is. As God, he had instituted it, and he can give this time meaning as it was intended to have. Let's see how. In Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15, the Sabbath commandment is linked to the story of how the Israelites were led out of slavery in Egypt. The rationale there for Sabbath keeping is remembering what God has done to bring freedom. So, Sabbath is about memory, but not only that. There were slaves in the ancient world. Now, just a note on that. In the New Testament, we'll see that slavery really is done away with, uh, and the groundwork of the gospel means that slavery will no longer be able to stay in place. That is not God's intent for humanity, but it was a reality at the time. So, in the ancient world, slaves, they're there, and by the nations around Israel, they did not get days off. They just worked and worked and worked. But here, God mandates that slaves are given a day of rest. Not only that, the animals too. You were not allowed to work your animals on the Sabbath day. And more, every seventh year or sabbatical year, even the land itself was not to be farmed. Just let it, let it be replenished. Let it rest. So, you see, Sabbath is a pointer to God's world pulled back into wholeness. It's about justice. It anticipates and looks forward to a time where God's perfect justice will one day be restored to the whole world. So, every seventh day is to be a day of rest, and so is every seventh year. That's why some professions still have sabbaticals. Even if it's only a few weeks off, not the whole year, it's meant to say we recognize that there needs to be a rhythm, and that's good for human flourishing, but more too. The Bible speaks of this sort of Sabbath of all Sabbaths. It's called the year of Jubilee, and you can find it in Leviticus 25. So, on the 49th year, which is what? Well, seven times seven, all slaves are to be released. All debts wiped out, forgiven. It was a new beginning. Probably should note that it never happened. Israel never kept it. Never. But the greatest description of Jubilee is found in Isaiah 61. This text announces a time of great liberation, of good news to the poor, and even sight to the blind. 
Biblical scholar N.T. Wright, he puts it like this, the point of Jubilee is basically to restore God's creation and God's people, to put things right in human society, human bodies, human lives, and the land which they cultivate. So, God is somehow using these time markers and these practices of justice that go along with them to point forward, to point to a time when God's purpose for God's good world, His sin-broken world, would once again be fully restored. When Jesus arrives on the scene, we have in Luke's gospel His very first sermon, preached, of course, on a Sabbath day. What does Jesus read? He walks into the synagogue, he unrolls the Isaiah scroll to chapter 61, and he reads it. Then Luke tells us, when he finished reading it, he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. Now everyone's eyes are looking at Jesus. What will he say? Well, here's what he says. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's like this mic drop happens there, silence. Jesus says, in essence, what God had promised to bring about a day of justice and healing and reconciliation, the day of jubilee, the Sabbath of all Sabbaths, that is found in me, Jesus says. And the gospel, as it unfolds, we see Jesus enacting those words of Isaiah 61. He's preaching this good news of liberation to the poor. He's healing blind eyes And yet, how He makes the restoration possible, no one expects. Jesus Himself bears the consequence of human injustice and oppression and sin in His own body on the cross. And then He's put in a tomb. He rests through the Sabbath. And then as John says it in his gospel, early on the first day of the week, Well, what's that about? Why mention first day of the week? Well, John is very consciously drawing on the book of Genesis. We've already seen that today, haven't we? What happens on the first day of the week? God creates time. God begins creation, it seems, that day. The first day we find Jesus freed from death, no longer in the tomb. Death has been conquered. In His resurrection, Jesus signals the dawn of a whole new creation, the great rest of God. That day that Jubilee had been pointing to where things are as the world was meant to be has at last found its ultimate fulfilling in Jesus' resurrection. That's why the early church begins to meet on the Lord's Day. What day is that? Well, it's Jesus' resurrection day. It's a Sunday. And that's why we meet on Sundays now, not Saturdays. The Jewish Sabbath is a Saturday. And we meet on Sunday to signal that we believe that God has now reoriented time, that the new creation really has come. It signals we believe in the new creation reality of the resurrection of the Son of God. Athanasius was a fourth century writer. Colton put me onto that this week. And he says this, the Sabbath was the end of the first creation. The Lord's day was the beginning of the second. Now, here's what this doesn't mean. 
this doesn't mean that taking a day off to worship and celebrate is unimportant, that somehow practicing Sabbath is now over. No. It no longer has the exact same meaning as it did in the Old Testament, since the Old Testament was a pointer toward this time of liberation. Now it would be redundant as a sign, since the thing it points to, Jesus, God's liberator, has already come. You don't need the sign when you're at the thing itself. But taking time to rest, to function within God's God-given rhythm, to enjoy God and God's world, to slow down and unplug from the worship of speed in our culture, that's still necessary for us. Dan Allender, he captures well how God's command still functions for us. He says this, a commandment is often assumed merely to be a prohibition. Such thinking is idiocy. Well, he's not mincing words here. God's commandments keep us from sucking diesel fumes in order to orient us to the fresh air, delicious fresh air, he says. Sabbath is the healthiest air for us to breathe. I was having a conversation with a friend this week, and we were talking, talking about and how he had been sort of maybe challenged. How can you believe all this religious stuff anyways? He's a very intelligent young man. And, and his reply is, it makes the best sense of the world. It's like a map that helps us navigate, and I don't want to do away with the map. That's what Allender is showing us here. God's commands with regard to time are actually breathing fresh air of how God made us to be. I need Sabbath. So do you. So let's finish off with a few practical ways that we can reappropriate Sabbath in our time. Uh, Lauren Winter uh, has noted how uh, Sabbath has been co-opted even in the secular arena in North American life. So two points on what Sabbath isn't. She points this out first. Sabbath rest is not for making us more productive in the other six days. The point of Sabbath is not to recharge the batteries so that we can just get back to work with some energy. No, I mean, that might be a byproduct and a good one, but it misses the point. That seems to give our work far too much prominence in our lives. Jones puts it like this, capitalism's justification for Sabbath says that the essence of the good life is increased capacity for production and consumption and that a day of rest is useful for a means to that end. Within the consumerist frame, then, the ultimate good isn't glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. It's glorifying products and trying to enjoy consuming for, I guess, as long as I can. Very different visions of life. Second, Winner writes, articles abound extolling the virtues of treating yourself to a day of rest. Uh, relaxing and leisurely visit to the spa, an extra-long bubble bath and a glass of Chardonnay. Take a day off, the magazines urge their harried readers. Rest. But notice, there's no reference to God, no delight in Him. Sabbath does include great personal joy and renewal in in our experience of it, but practicing Sabbath is not just to be another form of self-indulgence. I know the pushback would be, but don't we need self-care? Yes, of course we do. But Sabbath reorients our self-care away from, well, just myself. (laughs) The rest is necessary, yes, but Sabbath is more than, what do I really need right now? 
So what is it? And how do we practice it as a weekly rhythm? Well, it's taking one day to stop, to look back in the week in celebration. As God stopped and rested, it didn't mean recharging His batteries. It meant enjoying and celebrating His good world. It is for us too. So we stop to enjoy God and all that God has done. Two, Sabbath, the notion of taking a day to stop a regular work, is a signal of our trust in God. To stop being productive is a way to say, God, I believe you will provide. I don't have to keep producing this day because I believe you will give enough. Three, in doing that, it also signals to our watching world that we don't buy into the rat race. You might say it unmasks the harried pursuit for more, for what it is. It's really a false God that will never satisfy, and that's not the God we're worshiping. So, the practice of Sabbath is actually a witness to the watching world. And four, it's a time for gathering in corporate worship, even if it's online at this moment. And if you're watching this, that means you've taken the time, and honestly, thanks for doing that to celebrate and focus on God. Mike Cospers, he puts it well, he says this, perhaps the most significant rhythm in our lives is gathering regularly with the church. It's significant because it's the most outward, Godward hour in our weeks. And because it's a time when the invisible is made visible, the scattered church comes together The signs of the kingdom are present in bread and wine and in the waters of baptism. The gathered church is the foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. So, how do we build this rhythm into our lives? For me, I read, write, plan, and meet with people all week long. That's, you might say, my work profile. So, for me to practice Sabbath, I find that time outside enjoying nature, fishing, walking, wrestling with my kids, having friends over for a meal, not because I have to catch up on a pastoral level, but just to enjoy friendship. Those are life-giving activities for me, ways that I celebrate what God has done. They're gifts to be embraced. For me, Sunday isn't the day I take off. It's It's a full day of work for me. So, I generally take off from Friday night to Saturday night. For you, your work schedule might not allow a regular set day off. For you, your work schedule uh, might mean that you have to be more creative. But still, my encouragement is to take a set time that you say, this is dedicated not to production, but to simply being with God, celebrating Him. For many of us, Sunday actually does work, and I think it's a great thing because it begins again with that thanksgiving for, uh, for the week as we look back, as we celebrate together corporately. And so, I would encourage that. If you can make Sunday your Sabbath, that's an amazing day to take off. My encouragement is to find at least one day where you can say, I'm not going to use this to make money or be productive in my usual ways. I'm going to waste some time a royal waste of time, as Marva Dawn calls it, to celebrate God and enjoy what He's given you. So, I'd encourage you as well, another thing to do would be to turn off the distraction of screens um, 
for the day or most of the day, and so that you can focus on building community and celebrating God's world. Or maybe you would use your screens in redemptive ways. Maybe it's watching a movie, but it's doing so with family and friends. That's very different than using it as an escape from paying attention to God and those around you. I'm going to invite you now just to take a few minutes. We're, we're going to pray together. The worship team is going to come forward and lead us in one more song. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Um, I also want to invite you to check out the link to the guide. The practices that are in there are really meant to help us say, okay, how can I make this work this week? As well, we're inviting you to, to respond by sending your questions in to our staff team, and we're going to post video blogs each week in response to those. So you can send them throughout the week. We're going to try to film that on Wednesday and have it out shortly after, uh, probably by the Friday morning for you to watch and pay attention to. But send in your questions, and there's a link on our webpage to do that and in the description below as well. But let's pray as we close off, as we prepare our hearts just to worship and celebrate with this song as well. Lord, I thank you that you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we rest in you. We thank you, Jesus, for your grace that tells us we don't have to perform and create an identity that we then project into the world. No, you tell us that we belong to you through your grace. So, Lord, help us to be a people who rests in that and who celebrate it together by regularly keeping a rhythm of life. We thank you for the rhythm you've given us. Help us to live in it to your glory and our joy. Amen.